Welcome to this latest episode of Toby Haydoke's Who's Round, which is something, I suppose, of a voice museum. So, we're apparently in the best pub in England, I'm told. Well, one of them. <laughs> and uh, it's an illustrious day for Doctor Who, because as we record this, Doctor Who is ten years back on our screens, because it's the uh, 26th of March 2015. So, I'm celebrating in proper style by talking to somebody that's involvement with Doctor Who goes back to its second ever year proper. So, I'm going to ask him to introduce himself and tell me why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Well, I'm Spencer Chapman, production designer, um, working at the BBC, and quite early in my career, um, uh, I had just been made up, only just been made up to um, a designer as such, but I had worked at the time I was given to Ray Cusack, uh, who had, was working on the original Doctor Who, as you know, and um, I worked with him, uh, helping him along with the original inst- instigation of the Daleks. Um, a story you may have heard, I don't know, but the, um, the BBC canteen had little salt and pepper pots, which in fact were like mini Daleks. Um, either, either that or a phallic symbol, whichever way you looked at it. But um, uh, I'm pretty certain, because I did talk to Ray about it, that that was in the back of his mind when he was working on it, because you could move them around and shove them around. So, uh, although I didn't work on that particular production with him, I was there while he was drawing it up and working on it that way. And uh, it so happened that um, Ray was taken off to do um, a programme with Charles Chilton about um, Western music. So he, country and Western music. So he went off and did that. And when it came up the next Doctor Who, not because I'd involved myself with Ray, but it just bounced to me and somebody said, we'd like you to do Doctor Who. it was good at the time because it had just moved from Lime Grove Studios, where it was, in a, in a studio which really had no space or anything. And uh, it was going to be done at Riverside Studios, which um, probably preempted the television centre, really, as a complete unit. So we were given, I was given this rather large stage to work on, and, um, which was nice for me. Uh, Verita Lambert was lovely. She gave me sort of complete rain on what I was doing um, and uh, so we set about sort of working on that particular production. It's a hugely ambitious production I'd say the most ambitious production the show had done to that date it's Doctor Who's first sort of epic because you've That's got right, a, yeah. a helipad and I mean, there's lots of location filming as well but the stuff in the studio is very ambitious um, I mean I guess it's better to have a challenge and, and relish that than do something that is, is fairly straightforward, or was it a bit of a nightmare? Uh, no, it wasn't a nightmare. I, I just enjoyed every moment of it, because um, uh, there was something inside me that wanted to sort of create various things, and in fact, most of my life um, as a designer, I've broken all the rules, <laughs> uh, which I enjoyed doing, um, and this applied right the way through my career, I think, at the BBC. Uh, I was happier because I got such a big studio to work in, which is, you know, something which is, um, at that time, wasn't really relevant to everybody. I'd worked mainly in very small studios. Um, so I enjoyed doing it very much, yeah. Uh, there was obviously the, the biggest thing in it was the flying saucer, which um, mm. had landed, supposedly um, had landed. 
And so like all best BBC designers at the time, with my sellotape and sticky plaster, I sort of created what I thought was a flying saucer with a ramp to it and everything else. And uh, that was used a lot uh, during the sequences. Uh, there was a lot of work done by the special, uh, our special effects department of the BBC, which <laughs> one looks back at now and thinks of noddy telly, but um, that was what we did in those days. You know, It's very difficult to, um, to watch those things again from my point of view because, um, as we, you just said, that we are ten years away from the rebuild of it, mm. which of course had all the tricks, bobs and bits and pieces that modern television has. Um, we had just... Um, funny models and, as I say, bits of sellotape. So we did the best we could. Um, and uh, I think because we had some location filming, that added quite a bit to the story. I believe that helped a lot. You know, We were very lucky because immediately opposite us was the old White City underground station and also derelict area, which we were able to use for various, quite a few of the scenes. Uh, they hadn't rebuilt it at that time. and it Literally, it was just across the road from the centre. So we had underground situations, an old broken underground station, and very leafy top areas which people were able to run through, which meant we weren't miles away from our location, which uh, cut down on money and cost from those things. So that was used quite extensively, um, and uh, I think that helped tremendously in the production. I suppose as a designer, you're, you're you know, when you're on, is it... Do you feel you have much more control when you're in the studio? Because, I mean, I know you went to location and everything, but you're using existing places. You just, just dress them or slightly change them? Well, you try to, but I think the important thing to do is to um, sort of link up very strongly with your director. I mean, hopefully, um, one links up with a director that's happy to sort of show you things before it starts, and you're happy to give him ideas, and he can give you ideas too. It's a bouncing back, I think, from a director and a production designer that, uh, that helps a lot in these things. Well, I, I did uh, smile when you said you're a designer who broke all the rules because coupling you with director Richard Martin, then, right. who, who himself well, was, was a man who was a law unto himself. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll probably leave Richard Martin alone, actually, if that's all right with you. <laughs> no I do have lots of stories which um, I don't necessarily think need to be repeated on this, but when you've turned it off, I might tell you. Yeah, we'll have a very interesting <laughs> lunch without you, dear listener. I'm sorry about that, but it's one of the perks of the job. Um, do you remember, uh, and again you don't have to answer this one, but there's, there's, a, there's just a particular point of interest which I think is something that's come from Richard, which is where there are lots of posters which have vetoed written on them. That's right, the yes. Wall. Yeah. So what's the story behind well, those? Well, well, the story of that actually was that that was in the script that they got, you know, there were various signs of the, of the Daleks being around. And we did have one very interesting outside location, which was in the early hours of the morning in Trafalgar Square, where... I had a little stencil and I designed a little shape, a little sort of shape which I said was the Daleks logo which they put on everything, which they thought was theirs. And I went round with some um, white boot polish uh, or whitening which we used to use on our plimp sorts of things and stuck these all over various sort of bits and pieces of Trafalgar Square until I was stopped by the police and told them I got to wipe it all off. I said I would do but we didn't need to film it first. Um, we had six... Daleks uh, at the time on that, um, all on a lorry which came from Shawcroft, which you've obviously been told about mm. before. Um, a wonderful lot because they helped tremendously in the design and performance of them. And I had there's a great bit of controversy I'll give you now. I, I put uh, pedal cycles in them, 
which has been denied by other colleagues and other people. I think even Ray denied that I'd done it, but I had. Because the point about it is we knew that we had to move them very quickly from A to B. Um, and taking them down, putting them on the lorry, and sorting them out, driving them away and setting them up again took a long time. And we only had a short time because obviously we were filming before the whole of the place woke up. Um, the, list, the Trafalgar Square bit, um, we did have a few revellers in the pools which were laughing and joking at us, but we managed to do that sequence. And then the next sequence was going to be on which they wanted, um, which Richard wanted actually, which is quite right too, was on Westminster Bridge with the House of Parliament mm. in the background. And so it was decided, after a little chat with everybody, that everybody, the Daleks would ride down the road, which they duly did. So they went right down the Whitehall and quite funnily, two or three of them, because I was walking behind, and when they passed the cenotaph, they dropped their, um, their eyes down, <laughs> saluted <laughs> the cenotaph, went on, and then they stopped at the traffic lights, which had gone on before they turned left on the bridge. And um, uh, I distinctly remember this car coming down. Um, it was quite early on, obviously, and the chap did a, a wonderful double take on that he's, he's looking out of his other side of his driving road to these Daleks all lined up ready to turn. And they'd all put their, their feelers up to turn left, you see. And it, it, actually he left his car, got out, and uh, looked like he was scared stiff, jumped in again and drove off. They then turned down and went down into, um, into in fact, uh, the Westminster Bridge. And we shot the sequence with them there. And uh, naughtily I asked one of them to get out so I could go in. I just felt I wanted to do that. Sometimes you have to do these. <laughs> oh, so you, you do so a there is cameo. One, there is one Dalek which I've got on a photograph of me inside. Although you wouldn't notice me because I, we put the lid back on. But oh, but that, that's, that's still nice story. to know. That's well, still I nice wanted to, to do it, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you didn't, you didn't leave Doctor Who entirely after the Dalek Evasion of Earth, a much talked about story, because you did uh, contribute to a slightly less talked about <laughs> one, which is a shame because I'm rather fond of it. It's the Space Museum, yeah. directed for the last sort of credited work by Mervyn Pinfield, That's who right, was so yes. instrumental in Doctor Who's beginning. Originally, yes. Um, so, so tell me about the Space Museum. Well, the Space Museum, I was told by Garrity when she was still there, because she got me and talked about it, she said, we've got, we've got a filler, basically. We've got a four-parter rather than everything else, and we need to fill this in. That's what her comment was on it. Uh, and we can't spend too much money. Um, so it's all got to be done on the cheap. Um, uh, compared with what I've just done with the other one, which mm. did spend a lot of money, you know. So we did the Space Museum, um, which was quite a funny story, really. I mean. So I was able to build glass cabinets and stick various bits of pieces and things that were still around in the in the costume department and other department and make it look like a museum at Falls, you know, where we had the three of them wandering around. Uh, wander I, be honest with you, I, I can't remember that much about it, actually. It was... Um, uh, we did it uh, again at, uh, in Riverside Studios, but uh, no, I can't remember that much about it. Um, do, you, do you remember Mervyn? I remember Mervyn quite well. Yes, we got on very well, I think, you know, otherwise I don't think we'd have got through it. But um, I mean, fortunately, in my life, um, in my professional life, I've, I've got on mostly very well indeed with most directors and have tried to, to give them as much as I could do. And what sort of fellow was he? Because not much is because he he was one, probably the first contributor to Doctor Who to die. Quite, quite quiet, actually. Um, you know, he, he quietly got on with his work. I mean, he wasn't. Uh, there was no shouts, no shouts, or anything else. He he was quite reasonably firm with the actors. Um, <laughs> he was he was a nice man and uh, a soft man. And uh, I don't think we ever came across any problems with what I was designing for him. He was quite happy with what I'd drawn and 
and he seemed to accept it quite well. Well, as this podcast has established, and as I assured you before we met up, there is far more to life, I'm sorry, listeners, <laughs> than Doctor Who. So what had got you to be in a position where you were a, a designer at the BBC who was going to do Doctor Who? How had you, how had you arrived at that point? Well, I think I've, I arrived at being a strange one here for you, but arrived at the special choir for Westminster Abbey, which I was a member of when I was 14, 13, 14. And sadly, my voice broke just before the coronation, so I was out of that. But um, uh, I was then um, seen at that stage by a gentleman, lovely, lovely, lovely director called um, uh, Tyrone Guthrie. And Tyrone uh, uh, picked me, and I was chosen to be in his production of Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, Posted as a fairy called Peace Blossom, which in my tight. So uh, I worked with some lovely actors then. In fact, strange enough, actors that I'd worked that eventually ended up playing parts with me at the BBC, especially that. And um, anyway, that was a, a, a six-week run at the Old Vic. Um, and um, I think the one person that I really logged on to and liked was Paul Rogers. Um, he's a lovely man, mm-hmm. and I got on very well with Paul. And uh, uh, and the other fairies, such if you like, and we were all a bit sort of precocious, I suppose. Um, and we decided to put shows on because I'd started making puppets, um, glove puppets, which I had been doing as a at school and things, and everybody else. And we did, we put on shows for the cast. And um, I remember Paul saying to me uh, during that, he said, uh, "By the way," he said, "Spencer, if when you go into your future," he said, "Don't think of making puppets or acting." He said, you're much better at designing things. So he said, I should do that if I was you. Um, and that clicked with me, I think, really. Um, there was a lovely... Um, the designer of that particular production was a lady called Tanya Moisevich. And um, I s- linked up with her after the production was finished, talked to her and everything else. And she said, well, I should get yourself into an art school and see what you can do. And because I lived in North London, I went to Hornsey College of Art. I was fortunately taken on there. And uh, that was that. Uh, from there, I was fortunate enough to move into repertory at um, Farnham. And uh, I was at Farnham for nearly two years. Um, and then I tried for five years to become part of the BBC, because I thought, well, that's where I want to go. I want to be a designer. Um, and uh, after about... Uh, Putting in letters for nearly two years, I then was given a chance to meet, at that time, Richard Levin, and uh, who was the head of design then, and a lovely, wonderful man who I've always loved, called Stephen Bundy, who was uh, the designer at that time. A meeting with them, and uh, went to Dick's office and showed him my portfolio, and Dick said, oh, we've just got a, well, we've got a role for you, we, um, but we don't want you to have it. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, we've got a role uh, in our sort of buying department, a prop buyer, but I, he said, I think you're too good for that. So he said, i tell you what you've got to do, you've got to read the media and make sure you have a copy of The Guardian, because we'll, put, we'll be putting in the future uh, invites for young people to join us to, for, for the opening of BBC Two and Colour. And for two years, I, my mother and father bought The Guardian, which wasn't, you know, the Daily Mail was thrown away for a little while. Um, and eventually I missed it. In fact, a friend phoned me up and said, you know, you're looking for an ad, aren't you, Spencer? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, they want to take on 24 designers. So that's when it all started. 
goodness me, perseverance Sorry then. Like that. Long, no, long spiel, no, this um, is good, but perseverance then. Well, you had to in those days, you know, if you wanted to do something, you sort of did it, you know, I suppose. And uh, that was my career at the BBC, it started. You know. um, was then moved, spent a lot of time as an assistant and with people, and that where it links with Ray. You know. mm -hmm. And then eventually I was given a chance to do other things. Um, I will make one little comment about the Forsyth Saga. Um, there were two, not to be named, there were two very famous designers that were very much involved in period drama. One in Russian period drama and the other one in Victorian period drama. And um, they were both offered uh, to do the Forsyth Saga. When they found out it was a serial, they said, we don't do serials, do you? We just do major productions. <laughs> Which is a wonderful remark. But anyway, um, they were both friends of mine anyway. And um, then... So, all of a sudden, I was faced with this sort of um, situation where I was told, well, they don't want to do it, so we're going to give you a chance. And we'll give your other colleague, which is a lovely lady called Sally Hulk, mm -hmm. um, and she and I sort of embarked on, on doing the saga. Um, again, a bit like going into Riverside Studios for the first time and given an open hand. And I had a lovely, lovely director called David Giles, mm -hmm. who I... Uh, very fond of, and we worked a lot together. Um, but David, again, um, just let me go, if you like. Um, he let the reins go, and uh, I was able to do what I wanted to do. Um, interesting things that we tried for the first time. Another lighting director called Robert Wright, uh, um, and I worked together a lot. We did four-sided sets with, with ceilings on it, which was unheard of. We did bounce light instead of using the major um, floods which were normally used. You know, a, a box set with six floods in the front, but no, we were... Uh, and one w wonderful one, which both of us, uh, he and I, got told off about, which was um, Old Jolly and Study, which Rob said, let's light it entirely through the windows, which we did. Um, and I I did sort of Egyptian design around the windows, so the light reflected these patterns, and we shot the whole thing through the window. Another, another one called Ray Angel, who was a sound man, was quite happy to let people sit down, which was unheard of at the time, with bamboo canes under the furniture with mics on. Well, that wasn't done. I mean, the booms were the big thing. Um, and then both of us, all three of us, were hauled up against the head of engineering, who said we'd done things which you shouldn't have done. And does that sort of thing get... Because you said, you know, you'll, you'll mention it slightly. It was, I was definitely on my, on my agenda to talk about. I mean, the Foresight Saga, a bona fide mm. TV classic. But from how you're describing it, it wasn't just that it was this program that captivated the nation, but was also something that made leaps and bounds in terms of the way that you were making television then. It so. did, it did. From those, from those two points of view, I think from uh, uh, Bob Wright and uh, Ray, um, uh, hopefully with me as, alongside them, not that they did every production, but at least we started off in that routine. Um, and uh, the uh, costume designer too, um, she and I got together and we... The BBC wanted to originally do it in colour, but um, there was a, uh, a government thing didn't want us to use um, uh, Philips cameras. They wanted to, to wait for the EMI cameras to come on, on board. So although um, uh, they wanted to do it with colour, um, it didn't happen. But, but all four of us, including makeup and costume, 
um, we all decided, well, we're going to go ahead and make it in colour because at that time we were starting to hear about colour television and being told what we should do. Um, and uh, uh, a comment was made by all the designers, you can move it in or not, or use it if you like, but we always, we were told to paint everything shit brindle <laughs> and uh, browns and things, not to use colour at all, not to use red, not to use green, all those sort of things. Um, again, by a gentleman who was in charge of uh, colour or colouring us, which we were having, being sent up to Alexander Palace to do. Uh, but I'm afraid a lot of us didn't want to do that. Um, so all four of us um, make up costume and production design and lighting. We decided we'd do it as if it was going to be in colour. Um, the only colour photographs of it I took, which oh, wow. I still got, were not very good ones actually. Um, because the only other photographs that were taken were, were continuity photographs, black and white. Of course. Uh, we did have a chance after we'd finished it um, to shoot a section of it, which was um, uh, Soames meeting uh, Irene, first of all in the, the, her house in Brighton and in her conservatory. And we put in, David Charles did that, this was a test run for us. We used all the furniture exactly as we got it. The only difference was that um, uh, Soames put on a, a military red uniform and uh, we shot the whole thing in conservatory full of plants <laughs> um, it looked good um, and I think in a way that helped a bit of changing people's ideas of what it was going to be so that was just an experimental session it was it? a just session a... after we'd finished right. um, which was linked up to be part of the um, a whole colorization which we were going to do um, and it was a lovely long serial Sally did um, episode I think episode 12 13 to to, she did six episodes and then I finished up the final episodes at the end. Yeah, and, and you, I mean, it seems you uh, you and David Giles and the other director of Foresight Saga, yeah. James Kethlin Jones. James has always been a great friend of mine. Um, in fact, James and I lived, at the time we lived together, near, but just apart from each other, in, in uh, just over the road in Kew, and I was in Strand on the Green, he lived over in Kew. So we got together now. Um, I knew his family quite well and... Uh, and uh, that gentleman now that's now on television, Rory Kathleen Jones, held, yeah. in, held in his arm. <laughs> Good there start. There we are. Yeah. So you, I mean, we, we we sort of alluded to this in the car on the way here. You then felt you got a little. Is I suppose you know actors get typecast and designers get typecast to do. You were the period drama guy. I was at that time. Then I was handed, which I enjoyed doing because it was David Giles again, which was um, Vanity Fair. Um, that was another chance to work with Susan Hampshire, who I, she and I got on very well together. Um, and um, my wife at the time, as an actress, um, had small parts in it, and she and Susan got on very well together, which was also very useful for a designer to link up like that. Um, so I did Vanity Fair, six episodes of that, which David did. Um, and then Donald Wilson... Um, sent to us, said, linked us together and said, well, you know, I think you should get on with a new thing that I'm going to do called The First Chapter with John Neville playing, playing that. That was an interesting one because sadly, once Donald got going on it, um, he, he became very ill and um, some of the episodes were actually written by his uh, uh, sort of copywriter or sort of assistant lady and, um, and some of it we made up as we went along using Churchill's books. Wow. Um, and uh, it was an interesting thing to do, actually. Um, researching was researching was quite 
quite lovely to do. I enjoyed researching. It's one thing I've always enjoyed. Um, and uh, I was allowed at some stage to go to, um, well, it was actually at um, Windsor. Um, I went to the library and I was allowed in the library with the gentleman behind me making sure I was very good and looking at sort of various reports about various various things that happened to Charles and Charles II, Charles I and that whole situation and Queen Anne and uh, the relationship between Queen Anne and her friend. Uh, I was allowed to read a lot of that but as long as I didn't write anything I was told it got to go in your head only you see. <laughs> so that, that's a very enjoyable part of the production design work. Yeah. I think research is something which I think, uh, sadly, here he goes with his little bit, um, is uh, sort of thrown away a little bit now. Um, I don't think the designers have been trained or taught to, to do their own research work and uh, quite noticeable on some of the productions which have gone out recently when things have been rather wrong. Do you think standards have slipped in yes, that I do. Yes, I do. I don't think... Um, I mean, we've got some rather like Doctor Who has really upstepped itself and has got wonderful quality and wonderful things because there's so many things that um, the production team itself can use, modern things which have helped so much. Uh, so I don't think it's quite so much production values and things like that, but there are very many hiccups and mistakes I find and find difficult to watch um, with, with period productions. Um, I think the same thing applies to many of my colleagues in the engineering department. Um, they get worried about it, like, for instance, they were worried about mumbling and sound and other things which you didn't know about. Yeah. Um, so we do tend to uh, sort of chat a lot about that. And I find it very difficult to sit at home and watch some programmes when I realise that things are not quite where they should be. You know, um, One thing I brought forward on that, I'm sorry, I'm jumping a bit, but one thing I brought forward on that was um, the... Um, uh, Henry VIII, the first production of that, um, they were sitting on chairs uh, in the, that I, had, I had, had made and covered in the, in the first Churchill for Queen Anne. Uh, a little bit wrong for period and uh, there were two or three chairs in the background which I actually used in the Forsyth Saga. <laughs> Oh, really? um, now I'm not saying that um, anybody would notice that. I'm not saying that, you know. But it, it was something. And sadly, when you've been involved the whole of your life with making sure that, as far as you're concerned, things are right, then it's difficult to sit and watch those programs sometimes. Sure. Well, and you were steeped in it. I mean, I was looking at your, you know, you did the BBC Play of the Months that you did. You were doing classics, uh, directed, I mean, the, the list of directors you were, The Linden Tree with Moira Armstrong, yeah. Trelawney of the Wells with Herbert Wise, um, and uh, Seagull for, with Michael Gambon from yeah. uh, Lindsay Hogg, Michael yes. Lindsay Hogg. So great, great. All of them um, were, were lovely people to work with. I think the only one, only hiccup I ever had, um, and in fact I met him when I came back to Anglia, um, was with Trelawney of Wells. Um, he and I didn't hit it off completely. That was Herb, Herbie Wise. That was Herbie, yeah. And in fact, at the end of it, Herbie said, I don't think we'll ever work again together. And I said, that's fair enough, I don't know. I entirely agree with you. <laughs> but strangely enough, um, moving on to Anglia Television, um, we did a production there with him and he was completely forgot about who I was, I think. So, well, let's, <laughs> let's, let's chart that then, because you left the BBC. So why did you, why did you leave the BBC and how, how did you end up being at Anglia? Well, I left the BBC because I was being pruned or lined up to become uh, head of head of drama production uh, design, which meant that I would sit in, uh, sit in an office. That was mainly what you did. Uh, you were allowed to do one production a year, 
uh, to, as a teaser. But otherwise, you'd sit down, read all the scripts, and work out what you thought was the best designer to do those out of the 150 that you had at your disposal. Um, and I just didn't want to do that. I'm afraid I'm far too hands-on, and I always have been hands-on. Um, so, uh, with a great deal of reluctance, um, I sort of handed in my notice. I had, just before that, um, gone through the production design, production, sorry, production course, uh, trainee production, as a trainee product producer, director, um, which uh, um, I had done and uh, successfully went through it, in fact, to the extent that the um, lady that saw my production I did, I, I did a, a sort of 30-minute theatre, uh, saw it and said that she would be quite happy to let me do, to design, sorry, design, jump, 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 but to direct um, about a series of six. She said, I've got six I could give you. And sadly, I wasn't allowed to do it because the unions said, no way. Um, I was ABS and uh, everybody else was ACTT. And the only way I was allowed to do it, if an ACTT director sat with me the whole time in the production. And that, that in fact, um, couldn't happen because nobody could afford it. So that sadly went away. So that was all just union demarcation? It was at that time. It's sad now because it's changed completely, but at that time it was very strong, very strong indeed. Um, now Ridley Scott, who was um, with me at, at the Beeb at the time, Ridley had the same problem. He'd just done the production design and done an exceptionally good production. He was told that he couldn't carry on um, unless he joined the ACTT, and the only way he could join the ACTT was to leave the BBC which he did and went straight into commercials and you know the story from then mm. on um, I had uh, a wife and two children and a mortgage <laughs> and unfortunately although my late wife at the time said do it I said no I'm not going to do it I can't so uh, I, I didn't I stayed on um, and uh, as I say I then was adopted then to put onto this new role of this production man that read script and I with, with being, I think, emotionally being told that you've done a great job but you can't do it and also being told, well, we think you're better at sitting at a desk and I, I'm afraid those two things sort of hit me a bit. Sure. And um, so I regretfully said, I'm sorry, I think I've had enough. Uh, <laughs> I was then told by the, um, interesting, I was then told by the chief personnel officer that uh, I would never be allowed to work for the BBC again having been trained to this position and spending a lot of money training with the position and sadly that I don't think we shall ever need your services again, etc, etc, etc. Nothing to do with that, but my, my we had to spend a lot of money on houses. I mean, my wife was a great person to buy big houses. and We bought a very big Queen Anne house in a place called Dennington in Oxfordshire. And uh, we needed more money, so she went off and... Um, started a female discotheque, which strange enough came very, very good in the Midlands and um, was making quite a bit of money and I was sort of leaving my job at the BBC, rushing home and sort of helping her do that and putting up sets and things. Um, and um, she then said, well, I'm going to buy another house because we're making a lot of money. We need to make that money ourselves, not to other people. And so we bought this another big house, um, which again <laughs> needed more money. So for seven years we worked on that. It was a sort of a restaurant, um, discotheque, hotel, you name it. You know. So we, I worked on that seven years. But um, then you, then you dive back into. Well, it. what happened with that was that um, I went off to teach at um, um, 
again while this place was still going, at Aston University and the students. And I did a sort of three months course on their final year of design and production and theatre and film uh, and television. Um, I did that for two years, but I, I really found disheartened by the students. Um, they didn't seem to have the quality and things like that. Um, and a great production, des uh, production buyer friend of mine, uh, who again was the wife of uh, Austin Spriggs, who you may have come across, I don't know, you may not have come across, very well-known designer at the Beeb. Um, sadly, not with us anymore, but um, his wife, Shirley Spriggs, was a production buyer, and she said that there was a job going at Anglo Television for a designer. Why not apply for it? Which I dearly did. So that's why I bounce, bounce back in, if you like, to Anglia. Um, so what year, what time, what time? What, when I was 75, 75, 76, yeah. And your, and your subsequent career, I mean, funnily enough, <laughs> it, it unites you with people that uh, have all been involved in Doctor Who in some way that's or right, another. So absolutely, yeah. John Davis has actually yeah. done this podcast you worked with on all the P.D. Jameses. I did, yes. They were a great success. They were, they were great fun to work on, yeah. Um, uh, I did another thing with John, which was called um, Love Story, which was one that I did with him, which was yeah. great fun. Now, I had a lovely time at uh, Anglia. Um, I then uh, poached a designer friend of mine who was at the BBC um, uh, called uh, John, who came up and um, worked with me there. And uh, again, we were able to break rules. Which we enjoy doing. Well, it's interesting because almost you know everyone I've spoken to about for this podcast obviously worked at the BBC for some time and many of them for the, for the forever. Yes, yeah. um, so I wondered what and, the, and we've you know we, it's it's well known ground about how the BBC was broken up into departments and how the unions were. Was that unique to the BBC or when you went to Anglia did you find a similar infrastructure? Was there different? Pressures because of commercial television. What were the what were the things that were different to to you? I you think were... the difference was it was rather like working with a family firm, and in fact the family um, had created the television company. It was a um, it was created by in fact a, a farming family, um, and uh, it had that quality of that. I mean, I was my relationship with. Um, um, the governors and directors, everything that was quite different to the BBC, which was, you know, when you think there were 1,200 of us designers, let alone the assistants, before you got anywhere. Um, so apart from seeing the head of uh, services or whatever it was, or your head of head of um, management, you didn't see anybody else. But there, I was, um, uh, I was with the whole thing. It was a family company, um, lovely people to work with too, uh, and. Uh, a lovely, lovely man who I did most of the work with was called John Rosenberg, who was um, uh, in charge of, uh, was the main producer there. But uh, I had a lo very, very lovely time at Anglia, I have to say. Um, and as you mentioned, which you just said, that there were so many lovely people that I had already worked with, and it was lovely to renew acquaintances with them. So are there any shows that uh, I haven't, I've exceeded my time, I'm going to say, <laughs> are there any shows I haven't uh, asked you about that stick particularly in memory, either as, as you know, very memorable experiences or work that you were especially proud of? Uh, yes, there was one, I think, that I have been always very proud of, and that was um, uh, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's Road to Freedom, um, which I did again with John. Um, 
I think that was my best design work that I've ever done. Um, and the saddest thing about that is that the BBC have it, but won't let it, won't release it. It's been shown at the National Film Theatre, um, and in fact, John Davis went along to see it. His two episodes were shown. But I'm part of a great group of people online who have put down saying, please, can we have it on DVD? Beautiful people I work with on that um, and enjoyed doing it. It was, uh, again, a chance to do quite a lot of things which I've never had a chance to do before. Um, it was nice. I was out in France for about uh, two months working on it, which was jolly good. And of course, the same sort of thing, um, uh, which I am, I have got because they've now put out, and I'm very pleased with, and I enjoy doing it. That's Cosmo, which is one that I really enjoy doing as well. Um, and that was great fun. There were lovely things to do on that. Um, again, two months out in France and everything else. Uh, uh, I was told that I could go out and do three weeks' work out there. You know, the major locations, get them set, and then I'd got to come back and start working on the. Um, the production which was then going to be done at Evening Studios. Um, but anyway, it seems that happened that the young man that the BBC had employed to take us around in the coach tended to sort of roll his sleeve up and stick pins in it at night. Um, and one day, with a, the majority of the, um, of the sort of comedy situation of this country in it, you know, and great comedian actors. Um, anyway, the coach one day went off on the coach and was, fell into a ditch. And all of them said, we're not going out with that man again, he's going to be sacked. And uh, anyway, there was a look around to see, and I was the only person that had an HGV licence from the BBC. So would you believe I stayed on for an extra three weeks as a coach driver? As a coach driver. <laughs> but obviously, obviously I was doing, you know, location work. But that, sure. but that was good. But I had a good link with my um, um, people back at home and the designers all took my... I was drawing like mad and sending drawings up all the time. So it, it didn't cause any problem and it was great fun to be driving everybody around in a coach. Well, those Citroen coaches, those corrugated iron ones, are strange because the gear leaves are behind your head. They're back here. You have to change gear back here. Oh, well, out of sight. Oh, well, it's great fun. <laughs> and what about uh, Private Schultz, of course, was, uh, oh, that was produced by Philip Hinchcliffe, who was a, right. a great producer of Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. That, again, Philip was a lovely man. I got on so well with Philip and, and I enjoyed doing that programme enormously. That was, that was, again, great fun. Um, again, lots of lovely people that I worked with. Um, uh, the actors that I worked with and the other thing else, you know. Um, I was able then in a lot of shorts to uh, actually work out all the locations, um, which I duly did. We started, we kicked it off actually in Glasgow, um, and I was able to build the, the, uh, the camps. We used an old uh, army site and converted it into a German prisoner of war camp. And another little, I'll give you another little interest one, that um, the producing the £5 notes, um, I had a long talk with the Bank of England. We went down to the Bank of England to talk about what we were going to, you know, could we, it was still technically legal tender. And I wasn't, in those days, not allowed to show it on television or on film or anything else. So I had a long talk with them. Um, and I said, well, you know, we, we can't do the story without doing it, you know, and, um, but we will maintain everything we print, we will maintain and burn afterwards, etc., etc." Um, and I was told then that uh, I, I, if I had produced these notes, which I printed down in in, in London, 
um, I could, um, if I took them up to Scotland where we needed to shoot it, they could go into, I could take them in cases and I'd have to take a, a BBC um, sort of man along with us to make sure I didn't spend them. <laughs> well, I know, you know, it's not that actually, but you know, that sort of situation. Um, so uh, off we went with these pound notes, and, well, not five pound notes, the big white ones. Um, but then it came to the fact that um, we needed to show them being printed. And uh, I checked this with uh, the Bank of England, and they said that a Fast Five machine was what they used. It was a, a particular uh, printing machine called a Fast Five. And that was what they used to originally print the, print the notes on. So my production buyer, which I've mentioned the name before, which Shirley Spriggs, um, I said, I want a Fast Five. Um, she was very good at her thing because she found one in Berlin. Genuine article. <laughs> yes. Um, slightly cracked because it had been bombed. And uh, we can't say this for certain, but we think that was the one that was used to produce the five-pound notes that the Germans yeah, sure. actually wow. wanted. I think you, ca you can't say it for certain. Sure. Um, but it was cracked badly because of the bombing. It was useless, actually. But so we managed to bring it over, and we used that. We used that in the studio as the fast five that we were using. Uh, that was an interesting story. Um, again, a chance to bring something in, which is absolutely, which was lovely and, and, and very warming when you know that you're actually sitting, as far as you're concerned, with the actual machine that probably produced these notes. Yeah. Um, so that was good. Uh, a nice production to do. Um, but again, I was able. Um, to work with, work and choose most of, most of the locations, which I enjoyed doing very much indeed. Still have enjoyed doing. I, I think part of my fifty percent of my job. You talked about studio or or outside. Fifty percent of my job is outside, and I like picking locations which are right. Um, uh, and uh, I've been reasonably successful in that. Well, look, um, we're going to um, do this far, far <laughs> less uh, uh, formally, but uh, just bring us up to date then, Spencer, with, with uh, uh, the sort of latter part of your career and what you're up to now. Uh, well, sadly, um, rather like the BBC, um, ITV crumbled as well. Um, and uh, uh, Anglia Television was sold to a carpet manufacturer <laughs> who knew everything about television, of course. Um, <laughs> and 170 of us we got rid of. Um, I then linked up with an ex-colleague um, at Anglia, um, a cameraman uh, called Ted Williams, and he and I started a small uh, DVD company because we wanted to carry on doing what we were doing. Um, he carried on as a cameraman. I sort of jumped, jumped ship to a certain extent and became a graphics, uh, graphics designer and a sound man. Um, and we produced for seven, seven or eight years, we produced lots of um, television uh, DVDs, which were mainly historical about, about this about Norfolk and about um, these various things. Um, and uh, that was great fun for a seven years, kept me going. Then uh, I then met my <laughs> partner who I'm living with now. Um, she and I set up house. But then strangely enough, um, Norwich High School for Girls, which is quite a, an ongoing place, um, produces orchestras and other things, uh, um, produced three plays a year. And uh, so I went in and worked on that which I have and that was that was hands-on stuff that was uh, my garage at the house was turned into a studio and I was able to make scenery um, and that went on for oh, three years doing shows for them quite fun shows I enjoyed that um, and then I decided that it was time to stop so <laughs> I now spend my time what can I say um, 
sitting in my... Well, we, we, go a, we decided that we'd go over the world. I've just come back from... Um, uh, I've just come back from uh, um, uh, to New Orleans, which I know very well. My brother-in-law is a, quite a well-known musician over there, and um, I have played in New Orleans. I mean, I do play jazz. I don't know anymore. Um, but uh, I played over in... I played in New Orleans. I play bass, and... Uh, um, I I thought I'd take my new partner to see my brother-in-law, so we spent a, a lovely fortnight in New Orleans. I broke many of... Uh, sadly, I think that uh, she... Uh, Huckleberry Finn was in the back of her mind when she went over there. <laughs> and I'm afraid she was slightly disillusioned when we went there. Um, but that's not the point. She enjoyed it very much, you know. And it was nice to see my brother-in-law again. Um, and uh, the music's changed so much, that's the trouble. Um, it's... Uh, I suppose, like all things, is it is it my vintage years, or do things change so rapidly you can't keep pace with them? I think a lot of it is that, um, and it's very difficult to relate to modern youth playing their music because I can't relate to it as as well as I could. Obviously, I mean, I've grown up with um, with jazz ever since I was at art school, and I've been playing the bass since I was at art school, um, and. Most of the people that play the thing like I did, and we've talked about this about people going, have all died, sadly. Mm. <laughs> so there's no point in trying to stretch it off. I can't play with modern people. I don't understand. Well, I do understand what they're doing. Um, I try to understand what they're doing, but I do find it difficult. But I'm sure that applies to everybody of a certain vintage, as they say. You know, well, I, I, but I'm on the other that. hand, I, I, I try and think about my father who spent most of his time saying, you're not playing that rubbish music, are you? you know? um, so I've got to try and relate back to him in a way, which I try to do. It's all context, isn't it? It is, all... yeah, it is, yeah. Well, look, you've um, kindly given me your time for just a few um, glasses of real ale. We're, <laughs> we're going to go and get another one now, but before we switch off, uh, there are two questions. I should have primed you for this, I normally do. Uh, because you've given your time, because I don't get paid, because nobody who listens to this pays for it, we ask the listeners to donate to a charity instead. So what charity would you like to nominate? Well, the only charity I would nominate is cancer. Perfect. Uh, because, my, sadly, my late wife died of cancer, and um, her family, all, all the girls, have all died of cancer. And, uh, and an awful little gene, which has only just been exposed, which is called BRCA1, BRCA2, um, is the one that kills them. So I would like to do that, please. Yeah. Cancer research. Yes, very perfect. Much so, yeah. And um, it's um, fifty. It's ten years since Doctor Who came back, but <laughs> 50, over fifty years since uh, you worked on it, Spencer. And this is being listened to by uh, Doctor Who fans all over the world. So, what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, keep watching. It might. <laughs> it'll drop down again, like the original one did. But uh, keep faith with it. Yeah. And then, then somebody else can do a podcast That's about right. the Absolutely next 50 right. years. Absolutely right. But for now, Spencer Chapman, who volunteered himself to me, for which I'm very grateful, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. That's great. I hope that was all right for you. My thanks to Spencer. Uh, there'll be another Who's Round uh, next week. Until then, you can follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydock, at T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E. Um, but before you do anything as frivolous as that, please donate to Spencer's charity, 
which is Cancer Research UK, which is uh, www.cancerresearchuk, all one word, dot org, cancerresearchuk.org. Until the next time, goodbye. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, Order of the Daleks. This is Planetary Assessor Malcolm Pendle of the Central Galactic Census Bureau. We've picked up a signal, you see. A signal? From here? What kind of signal? Doctor, you were foolish to return here. Four strangers approach the gate. I need all the novices to ready arms. Demons. Uh, we're not demons. Uh, demons, women. What's the difference? My brothers, destroy these demons from another world. These were beings unlike anything we had ever encountered. This planet was a Garden of Eden. Soon it'll be nothing more than a Dalek chemical factory. Soon the Order of the Daleks will reign supreme! Big Finish. We love stories.